Well, I want to raise with you the question, who are you and what are you to do? Of course, to even ask that question uh, assumes that there is some kind of purpose. Uh, if you are strictly an atheist and don't believe that there is any God, that everything is a matter of blind, meaningless chance, then to say, who am I? Well, I'm just a, a homo sapien. I'm a, a human species. I'm a creature that lives on this planet. As to what am I to do? Well, who cares? I'll, I'll do whatever I like. I'll do whatever makes me feel comfortable. I'll do whatever I can get away with. I'll do whatever people want me to do if that makes life better. And of course, it's very hard to live a meaningless life. And so I think that there are so many people around in our world who are just struggling with this question of their own identity. Uh, and of course, there's lots of different ways that we seek to establish our own identity these days. Uh, and, and the implications of that as to what we should invest in in life, what we should uh, do with education, what we should do with our money, what we should do with where we live, how we work, where we travel, our relationships and so on. We're trying to work out what makes sense, what's significant for us. I guess if you were to ask particular groups of people, they would have an answer for you that was quite structured. If we ask the Jewish people, for example, uh, the people that we are reading about here in Exodus 19, uh, probably for hundreds and now thousands of years, they would say we are people who've been made by God, made in God's image, and we're seeking to be obedient to God and we follow his law. What would a Christian say? Well, they would kind of say much the same as a Jewish person, but I think they would have more to say and will see the significance of moving beyond what the Jew would say with obedience to God's law and think about something that is even better than that. So I want to look at this passage with you and I'm going to take you back first of all to Exodus chapter 19 that was just read for us and I want to pick up on three aspects of what's taking place in this account. First of all the mountain and then the notion of worship and then the covenant and in order to understand what's happening in Exodus 19, we need to see that God had made promises to his people that are now being fulfilled. So I'd like to recap a little bit prior to this and take you back, first of all, to what we saw in the second week of looking at Exodus, where Moses is out in the, uh, the, the wilderness area and he comes to a mountain called Horeb. And it's in Exodus chapter 3, and there's a bush that's on fire that doesn't burn up. And uh, God introduces himself to Moses at this time as being the God of his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, there's various connections. God says that he's going to rescue the people from their slavery in Egypt. And he says in verse 12... When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So he's there at Mount Horeb. God makes a promise that when they're rescued, they will come back to this place and they'll worship God there. Now keep that in mind. The second thing is this notion of worshipping God. We see it there in that verse. But if you remember over the weeks that we looked at the plagues, remember the 10 plagues of Egypt, how Moses 
is saying to Pharaoh to please let the people go so that they might worship God. Indeed, that's just picking up on what God had said because God said uh, to Moses that he was to go to Pharaoh in chapter 4, verse 22, and say, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. Well, that's exactly what Moses keeps saying to Pharaoh. Uh, he says, let my people go that they might worship me on each of the occasions that are printed out there for you on your handout. Uh, I won't read them all out because they pretty much all say the same thing. That is, let my people go so that they may worship me or so that they may worship the Lord. And eventually, of course, Pharaoh, in the middle of the night, during that Passover, says to the Israelites, go and worship the Lord. And that is the promise that God had made, and we're waiting for that to take place. The next thing that I want to lay as a foundation for understanding chapter 19 is God's covenant commitment. Now, God is a God who makes covenants. Now, let me just say a few words about what a covenant is, for example. A covenant is pretty much an agreement, uh, usually between two parties. Uh, so many of you will have all kinds of covenants, if you like, that have to do with things that you've purchased. So I have a covenant with Telstra. That is, I agreed to pay them a certain amount of money uh, and that will pay off the iPhone that I got from Telstra and I'm obligated under that covenant to keep paying that until the time when it's fully paid for. And if I want to get rid of the phone in advance, I have to pay out the full amount. Well, that, that's a covenant. We would tend to call that a contract, but a contract is a type of covenant. Now, there are different types of covenants, and it's not so much uh, what the item is that determines their significance, but the relationships and the people and the circumstances. Uh, on the 3rd of December in 1983, my wife and I made a covenant to each other at the front of a church. We said from this day forward that we would love each other for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and so on. That's a covenant. It's a marriage covenant. Well, God is a God who makes covenants. And that's really a very extraordinary thing for God to put himself under obligation to his word. God is putting himself under obligation to promises that he makes. And he's made these promises since the very beginning. Um, there's a, a re-covenanting that takes place with Noah. So if you remember the account of the floods and the ark and Noah and his family being rescued, in Genesis 9, God makes a covenant, which is probably just the renewal of the covenant that he makes with the creation. And he gives them a sign of the covenant, which of course is significant for us living uh, near Rainbow Beach, where we see rainbows, this was a sign, a covenant, that God wouldn't judge the world in this way anymore. Now, the covenant in particular focus is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And we find that covenant back in Genesis chapter 15 and a little earlier in chapter 12. This covenant is one where God will bless Abraham 
He will form a great nation, and this nation will be a blessing to all nations. And they will come into a land where they will be God's people. What happens then is that this covenant promise, God kind of reshapes it and gives it more focus. And so I'll just come back to Exodus chapter 6 um, and look at the background of this in Exodus chapter 6 and uh, verses 2 to 8. We see here, God saying to Moses, I am the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and so on. And then it says how he's going to rescue them. Now, with that in mind, let's now come to Exodus 19. So a, a bit of background here, these three things. Uh, the mountain, the worship, and the covenant. Because what we see when we get to Exodus chapter 19 is that they have arrived at the base of the mountain. Um, so we'll pick it up and just recap. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai, and after they'd set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. They've got there. They're at the mountain. And if you missed that they're at the mountain... You read through this passage and you are told again and again and again where they are. I don't know if you picked it up when Sam was reading it, just how many references there are to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, to going up this mountain, to not approaching this mountain, to having a perimeter around this mountain, to washing yourself before you go on the mountain and so on. We are told that the Lord descended to the top of the mountain and Moses goes up this mountain. The mountain is the focus. And what we're hearing is that God is keeping his promises. He said he would bring them to this mountain. He has done that. And here they are, the rescued people. They're gathered now at Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai, they are one and the same. Here they are. And God now establishes them as his covenant people. So let's pick it up at uh, chapter 19 and verse uh, 3, or 4, sorry. God says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on an eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God brings his people to the mountain and then he establishes his covenant with them. They are to be his treasured people, special to him, we see. And these covenant people here are told that they will be a holy nation. That is, the word holy just means set apart. They'll be set apart to be like God. There'll be a distinct nation, this Jewish nation, and they are to be a kingdom of priests. Now, that doesn't mean they'll all be kind of um, going around doing priestly things. 
I think it's picking up the image of the priest being the one who kind of connects God to the people. And he's saying that, that what's going to happen here is you're going to be a distinct group of people. You'll be my people. And through you, I'll be making myself known to all people. So Israel here, you see, they're, they're getting their identity. They're becoming a nation. And they're a nation with purpose. They're, they're to be distinctive and separated, to be with God, to be like God, and to make God known to the nations so that his promises to Abraham can be kept that they might bless all nations. So we've got Mount Sinai, we've got the covenant people, and as you read through this chapter, it seems to be all about preparations for worship. That is, they are to be a kingdom of priests. They're to be a holy nation. The people are told to consecrate themselves, um, to set themselves apart and ready to be worshipping God. And so Moses comes down the mountain, verse 14, and he consecrates the people and they wash their clothes and they prepare themselves and so on. And down in verse 23, they're to put limits around the mountain and to set it apart as holy. They're getting ready for worship. And we're not told exactly what that worship will be yet and what it will look like, but they are preparing for this worship. So what I want us to see at this point, right, is that God has made promises that they are to be brought out of slavery to this mountain and this will be the place where they come to worship God and God will renew his covenant commitment to them. You get to chapter 19 and all those things are in place. Now, these things are all in place before we get the Ten Commandments. Right? This is God saving his people and giving them a purpose. They are to be distinctive and the Ten Commandments will make sense in the light of that. Now, um, I want you to see something in particular about this covenant. Um, it's, a, it's a very important thing to see and it's quite worrying when you think about it. In, in verse, uh, I can't read it, verse 5, he says here, I'll read from 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Okay, so he's, he's rescued them from Egypt and I've carried you on eagles' wings. They might not have felt that way, but it, it's a, an image here of God bringing them safely out of Egypt to myself. And then he says, now if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, even though the whole earth is mine, and you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's the scary bit there? If. And not just if, but if you obey me a little bit? No, fully. So it kind of seems like they're being set up to fail in a way. Um, the Israelites don't take too long to fail. Uh, we're going to read a dramatic failure in a couple of weeks' time when they build a golden calf. Uh, you can read on from Exodus into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and, and Joshua and Judges and through 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles and you'll get failure after failure after failure you'll just get a history of breaking the covenant. And it gets so bad that God takes the people 
from the the land that is theirs, from the city that is theirs, with the temple that is theirs, and takes them captive into Babylon. And that's where we were looking at Daniel last year, the people captive in Babylon. So in other words, they get rescued out of slavery in Egypt, and then they make such a bad job of keeping the covenant that God says, that's it, I'm done with you, off to captivity in Babylon. Well, they do break that covenant, but at, at the time that they are in captivity, God renews his promises. And there are many of these uh, renewed promises, but I just want to take you to one because we're going to pick up on this particular one. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Uh, listen to these words in Jeremiah 31. What we have here is the bridge to understanding the new covenant. So in, in Jeremiah 31, I'll read from verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You see there the marriage covenant imagery being used. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. See, God is making a new promise that because the old covenant has failed, and it, it, it's not that it failed, it's not that God failed, it's that Israel have failed. They broke the covenant, but God hasn't given up on his part of it, so he's going to make a new covenant. And because people's hearts have been hard, and we've seen them getting hard in the book of Exodus already. God is going to give people a new heart because he's going to write the law onto people's hearts. And so the spirit of God will work from the inside out and God will forgive people's sins. He will forgive their wickedness so that even though people will fail, God is going to create a new covenant where there will be a means of forgiveness where guilty people can receive the blessings of God. That's extraordinary. That's why the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. And, and I want us to see how this gets expressed because as we come to the New Testament, and the word testament, by the way, it's the same word as covenant. Um, so you could have a Bible with two covenants. You've got your old covenant and you've got your new covenant. Testament is just from the Latin, as I understand it, of covenant. And so here we've got the old, now we come to the new. What do we see with the new? Well, I want us to look through the lens of Jeremiah 31, which takes us to the book of Hebrews. And so in Hebrews chapter 8, we get these verses quoted. Uh, Jeremiah 31, they're, they're quoted in detail in Hebrews chapter 8. If I can just find it for you. I won't read it all again, but in, uh, in Hebrews 8, verse 7, he says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, 
No place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and then he quotes Jeremiah, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant and so on, down to I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Just quotes that whole section that we just read. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So the writer to the Hebrews is saying, God has now done this. This new covenant has come. God has surpassed the old covenant, replaced it with the new covenant. And the new covenant has to do with forgiveness. And so if you come down into Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15, he says this. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, I know this is a lot to take in, right? Um, we, we're covering some, some pretty big things. But, but notice the contrast there. The old covenant, that one with Moses, God had redeemed the people from slavery in Egypt and he brought them to worship him at the mountain. And now we've got Christ the mediator who dies as a ransom to redeem people and set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So in order for the second covenant, the new covenant, to work, there needed to be forgiveness of sins. In order for there to be forgiveness of sins that could count for another, you needed one who kept the first covenant completely and perfectly, that is Jesus, who could then die as a substitute for you and for me. And uh, if we were to read on, we, we, we discover this language also in chapter 10, uh, verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So here's the first point, really, and, and we're, we're now in the zone of application. God has made a covenant, that, that is a, a contract. And God has done everything in that contract for us. He, he's made it possible for us to get all of his blessing because Though we will fail in living lives of obedience to God, he forgives us because Jesus has died to pay the price for all of that. How good is that? So, so all this stuff that's going on back there is leading us forward through the Old Testament, arriving at the New Testament or the New Covenant, and, and we get to Jesus and the writer of this book, the Hebrews, tells us that it's all been replaced and it's been fully satisfied by Jesus dying in our place. So we can now enter into a, a covenant relationship with God because Jesus has died for us. And, and God can start to transform us, writing his word onto our hearts, his spirit working within us and changing us from the inside out. That's what he's doing. 
And if you don't know that, if, if you've not come to the point of realising that, that God has actually reached out to us in Jesus to make us uh, welcome in his presence, to forgive us for our sinfulness and make everything possible for us to be united with him, then that's a great piece of news to discover. We also see that, remember how he, he said he'd take them to a mountain and he brought them to the mountain? Well, there's another mountain. There's a, there's a more important mountain that gets mentioned in Scripture. I won't give you all the backgrounds to the mountains and hills and everything else, but, but we start to hear about a place called Mount Zion. That it, it really is picking up on God having a temple that is on Mount Zion, uh, but the idea kind of gets extended through the writings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so on to be more than a physical temple in a physical mountain. And, and when you get to Hebrews chapter 12, um, listen to this. He says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So the writer of the Hebrews, he's, he's got Exodus 19 in mind, right? And what he's saying is you've not come to that mountain. No, it's something different for you. He says here, the next verse, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. They're all images. You've come to the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. So the mountain that the people of Israel come to to worship God has been surpassed. And, and the mountain, really, it's an image of coming to the presence of God as the church, the church of the firstborn Jesus, that we're now gathered together with God. He says, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that's, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then he goes on to say, See to it that you don't refuse God who speaks. He says, if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's a couple of things I think that, that Exodus 19 prepares us for with the worship of God. That is, it shows us that the worship of God is no simple, casual thing. Moses is shaking, he's terrified. The priests are terrified. The people are terrified. God says, stay away from the mountain. And that tells us something. That is, God is a holy God and he cannot come into contact with, with, an, with a, an unholy, sinful, um, selfish bunch of people without them being destroyed. So he says, stay away. Don't get too close. 
but he can come into contact with a, a selfish, sinful, wicked group of people if their sin has been forgiven. And you see, through the death of Jesus Christ, we can now come into the very presence of God. It's not a pretense either, is it? It's not like, well, I'm not really that bad. No, that would be to bring God down to our standards. God's standards are absolutely perfect. And I stuff up within minutes of getting awake, getting awake every morning. And probably will continue to do so. And yet, God forgives us our sin because of Jesus. So we have a better covenant, we come to a better mountain and it's really a picture of God's people gathered together with him and we are called to worship. Notice it says there, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. See, at the heart of the worship of God is to remember that God is God. He's not just a big version of us. He's not a big cuddly teddy bear. He's not however I like to think about the being in the sky. He's God. And he's described here as a consuming fire. That is, he's a holy God. His standards are perfect. His justice is complete. Everything about this God leaves sinful people terrified. And yet we don't have to be terrified because of what he's done for us. But don't take him for granted. I think there's a... Um, I'll get this wrong and, and, and um, Fiona might fix me up with this, but uh, there, there's a scene in, um, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which um, I think it's Lucy asks... Uh, whether Aslan, the lion, is safe. Um, no, whether he's tame. Is that right? Whether he's tame. And, um, and the answer is, of course, he's not tame. Um, and, and you've got there an image of, of the Lord, a, a powerful image of the Lord. He's not tame. Um, and I don't know why I started to say this, because I can't remember anything about this illustration anymore. But don't worry about that, all right? Just a little bit of light relief. I'll, I'll get instructed later and I'll be able to repeat it. English teacher, perhaps? You... He's good. That's right. Thank you. He's good. He's not, he's not tame. He's good. Is it, he's not safe, but good? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's not... All right. This is kind of work your own illustrations out while you do the sermon. Um, anyway, um, okay, so we're called to worship, and I want to take us back to one more passage, right, to understand the implications of this. And this really gets to the heart of who we are and what we're to do. Um, turning a couple of pages for, further forward in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen people, it says in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's written to Christians. It's the language of Exodus 19. See, 
what God is doing in Exodus 19, he's preparing us for what he will do spiritually and eternally through Jesus. And the categories and the language and the images and the incidents, they actually help us understand more fully the picture of what happens in Jesus and therefore what happens for us. And if you or I are at all confused about who we are when we come to Christ, there's a number of things I think that are very clear from this. One is we are not an island. It's not simply that a person has an individual personal relationship with God that has no relationship with others who have relationships with God. We come to a heavenly assembly. We are being built together. If we read the verses that come before, we're being built together into being a royal, uh, a, a, a holy priesthood. We are built together to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're God's special possession. It's all corporate language here. And we have a job description, that is, we are called to be God's special possession that we might declare the praises of, he, who, of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, that's just the, the full expression of what God intended with the covenant with Abraham, that he would bless all people. The covenant with Moses and the Israelites, that they would be his royal priesthood, the holy nation, that they might bring blessings to all the nations. That hasn't been forgotten. It's just been fully expressed in Jesus. So we, Christian, Salt Church, we've got a job description. It's to be a blessing to all people. Um, it's to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And I think that's a lot more than singing. I think it includes singing. It's a, it's, a, it's a this and, if you like, because it has implications for the nations. It has implications for all people. And you see that when you read on. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans as literally amongst the, the nations that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. This is not Christian enclave stuff. This is live lives in the community that make a difference and live lives in the community that point to what God has done for us. Let's make Jesus known. Let's declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light. Let's tell people that God has come amongst us, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he lived, he died, and he's risen from the dead. And because of Jesus, we can have a relationship with God for all eternity. Don't be embarrassed to share that good news because that will make a difference for people in this life but in the life to come. And God's promises aren't temporary promises. They're not just for here and now. Yes, they have a big impact on life here and now, um, absolutely, but they are for eternity. So friends, we have a better covenant. We, we can enter into relationship with God because of Jesus. 
and we come to a greater mountain that is we, we come into the very presence of God with one another that, that we might come to know him and, and enjoy him forever and we've been called to worship and and that's not just gathering together that's not just singing that's actually living lives in the community in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we may be. That's living lives as living sacrifices, if you like, to use the Romans 12 language that we looked at the year before. This is using everything that God gives us to point to God and to help others come to see that God has done everything for them through Jesus. That is great news. Let's, let's pray that God will help us to be his people in this sense.